morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is a recent attendee at the Bookmarks Movable Feast, Curtis Chin, whose memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant, was published in 2023. Curtis, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Happy to be here, Charlie. So you describe yourself as ABC, American-born Chinese. Um, tell us a little bit about your family's background, why and when they came here from China, and how they ended up in Detroit, which is a city a lot of us don't necessarily associate with being a, a hub of Chinese culture. Thank you. My family's had a, a great history here in America, actually. It's how I start off my prologue, actually, because I felt like uh, while the memoir is about me, I don't think you can know my story unless you know my family's story. So I start off the prologue talking about how my great-great-grandfather, Gong Li Chin, moved from Canton, China to Canton, Ohio, before realizing there weren't Chinese people there, and then moving up to Detroit um, in the uh, late 1800s, just as the auto industry was just taking off. And you know, trying to find a job in that field, but not being able to because he didn't speak English and then, you know, working his way up like that, you know, American dream, quote unquote, um, and eventually opening up a restaurant in 1940. And that's the uh, centerpiece of the of the memoir is my childhood growing up in that business that my family ran for over 65 years in Detroit. Well, well, so as you said, that this book is a memoir. Um, and you you write you said that you write what you remember and believe, but can you? I mean, I've I've written a memoir before too. Can you talk a little bit about the process of of how you access those memories, especially from from early childhood? What what did research, for want of a better word, look like for this book? Well, fortunately, I am one of those dreaded middle children, um, <laughs> yeah, me often too. ignored as a kid. And so I think, yeah, as middle kids, uh, what that forces us to do is we pay attention to everything else going on. Because when people enter the room, they're not focused on us. They're they're talking to my parents, my older siblings, whatever. So I spent a lot of time as a kid just watching other people. And I think because of that, I have a really good memory. Um, also, because I had to uh, start, you know, working in the uh, dining room of our restaurant very early. You know, I had to meet lots of different people and I had to learn to juggle things very, very early. Um and so I think that helps with my memory. But in terms of what you're talking about, like in terms of research, um, it, it was very helpful because one of the things I wanted to do with my memoir was tied into the history of Detroit. Because mm -hmm. as I like to say, is the book for me um, fulfills three things. One, it retraces my childhood, but it's also a, a thank you letter to my parents for giving me this wonderful life. And the third is it's a, it's a hat tip to my hometown. And so because of that, I did a lot of research of what was going on in Detroit back in the 80s, trying to refresh my memory. And when I did that, it triggered these memories of like, oh, yeah, that's how I felt about that. Like, oh, that's where I was. And it actually helped in that, right? Because it, it sort of jarred up, um, jogged memories for me. And then obviously, I tried to confirm them with my family members, like saying, hey, do you remember that? Do you, you know, and so that helped too. 
So did you ever find memories coming back that really surprised you? You know, it's interesting because when I first started this uh, process of wanting to write a memoir, I sent myself an email with about 20, 30 stories that I thought like, wow, these are the stories that I remember as a kid. But only I think about 10% of that actually ended up in the book. Oh, interesting. Some of, my, some of my favorite memories of growing up are not in the book because they just don't fit the larger narrative of yeah. what was the book that was able to be sold, right? Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, uh, you know, I did have to dig deep and try to remember things. So like my agent would ask me, oh, do you have a story that sort of fits in, you know, with this, right? Or did something happen like that? And then I'd be like, oh yeah, that did happen. Because to me, they were like insignificant moments. I don't think that they're that that pivotal, but in her, when working with her to develop this, uh, the, the proposal to sell the book, she tracked the arc. And so she was able to say like, well, well, where are these moments? Do you know what I mean? And so um, if you do have, uh, you know, authors out there who do want to sell their own memoir, um, one of the things I do say is that I love my editor, but my agent is the one who actually spent, you know, more time with me, yeah. like over a year actually developing it, um, you know, and getting into the shape where she could hand it off to the editor to to take it in for the touchdown or the home run or whatever metaphor you want to use, right? Yeah. So, you know, organizing a memoir, I think, is always a challenge because our memories are not necessarily organized. I mean, we're, our yeah. our head is not like a, a scrapbook that goes in chronological order. Um, and I think you come up with a pretty ingenious, appropriate, delicious way of, of organizing this book. Tell, tell us a little bit about how, how you chose to organize the book and how, and sort of the options of the the possibilities that that opened up for you as a writer? Well, I wanted to have fun with this book, right? Along these different ways. And so the way I structured the book was that there are three sections of eight stories each, eight in elementary, middle school, eight in high school, and eight in college, because 888 is good luck to Chinese people. I also structure it so that it's like a Chinese menu. And the reason I did that was because I wanted the journey of reading my book to be like, the journey of going into a Chinese restaurant. So the opening line is, welcome to Chung's, is this for here to go? I mean, that serves as, as the general um, theme of the book and the question that I try to solve by it. But it's also the opening line when my parents would, you know, uh, uh, talk to anybody that entered our lobby. It really yeah. was. And so the ending, obviously, is the fortune cookie and the please come again. But uh, I just thought it'd be fun to sort of, um, you know, play around with this idea of the, the reading experience, connecting it to a real life experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and then all the dish and all the all the chapters are you know uh, uh, listed like a Chinese menu. <laughs> yeah, I you mean, you get you definitely get hungry reading this book. Um, yeah, especially your yeah. description of the egg rolls. I'm just like, oh. um, you. One of the stories that I found particularly compelling as someone who, you know, the immigrants in my family came many many generations ago. Um, it was this your grandmother had this idea about how she was going to get some free labor in the restaurant and it didn't exactly work out the way she planned. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how that played out and how it affected your grandmother's relationship with, with your father and with the whole family really? Yeah. I mean, I think um, when you're a small startup <laughs> with your family, uh, they call in everybody possible, right? Everybody, it's all hands on deck. Everybody works, right? Um, you know, uh, kids, you know, spouses, whatever. And so, uh, when my grandparents' opportunity to expand the restaurant, 
to a larger location in a different neighborhood. And so when that happened, they needed more staffing. And so my grandmother, who was the big boss of the restaurant, she, A, had my dad drop out of community college so that he could work full time at the restaurant. And he also sent my dad home. Well, not home, but my dad was born in America. But he sent my dad, she sent my dad to Hong Kong to meet a wife who could also then work for free. You know what I mean? Extra labor. But then when my dad got to Hong Kong, uh, the girl that my uh, grandmother had wanted for him um, already had a uh, boyfriend. And so my dad had to go find somebody on his own. And because my grandmother had no say in choosing uh, my mom to join the family, uh, she never accepted my mom. And that led to a lot of friction, um, you know, in the house growing up. Yeah. So you write that in school, you learn not just the famous three R's, but a fourth R, which was race. And obviously race plays a huge role in this in this book. But can you talk a little bit about the role it played in, in your uh, in your childhood and your growing up and in your family's restaurant? Well, Detroit's a very racially polarized city, right, between black and white. I mean, it's just historically known as that. And, you know, as an Asian American, I always knew that I didn't really fit in either category, right? Growing up, one of the most common phrases on the playground was fight, fight between a black and a white. And I wanted to play with both kids. So I was like, I didn't want to have to choose. But because by not choosing, both sides started to like pick on me, you know, with their Bruce Lee jokes and stuff like that and these Kung Fu things. And so having to navigate that has always been a challenge, you know, as an Asian American, because I want everybody to get along. I want to, you know, I want everybody to to uh, be able to play together. Um and so, uh, yeah, understanding racism was definitely, um, you know, uh, one of the themes of the book, as is, you know, my coming out story, as is, more importantly, class actually plays a pretty big role in the book, I think, because, yep. you know, as a working class family, moving to a middle to upper middle class neighborhood where the uh, student body was 98% white, it's a question of how do I navigate that, right? Um, that space. Yeah, and that's that, I found that very interesting. Can you talk, can you expand on that a little bit about the differences between the way your family was treated, you know, in in Detroit proper, and then when you moved out to this this suburb, which was you know racially completely different from from where you had been before. Well, I think that when you grow up in a more diverse neighborhood, right, um, I think it's easier for people to sort of be themselves, right, because there's no one dominant culture that's forcing everybody to sort of fit in. It's it's a little bit more challenging figuring out who you are, right? Because there's no model, but it actually is a little bit more fun, right? Because you can just be yourself and, and you can learn from other things. When you move to a community that is majority uh, of one one race or, or religion or whatever, there is a dominant culture that you then, if you're not part of that dominant culture, have, has to ask yourself, um, what do I need to do to fit in? because there is this template of success, right? And it may not be my community or my understanding or the way I was raised, but you're forced, you're given this question of, well, do I assimilate, adapt, or do I continue to be an outlier, right? And so in my case, I decided to like, you know, blend in as much as possible. And so in the book, um, I decided to become this young Republican because that's that's what was the prevailing, you know, uh, you know the culture at that time. Yeah. And so- you know, I was senior class president, president of National Honor Society. I started the Young Republican Club, Students Against Smoking. Margaret Thatcher was my imaginary girlfriend. Um, <laughs> so, 
for me, that was the best way of fitting in. Uh, but then, you know, when I went back, when eventually when I went off to college, again, going back to a more diverse um, area at the University of Michigan, even though it was still a predominantly white school, at least, you know, it was big enough where I could find, you know, people with different, um, you know, backgrounds, attitudes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I felt less pressure to sort of conform again and, you know, the freedom to sort of be myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, you write about your dad. You say, thanks to your dad, you learned not to be afraid of people who are different from you, which is obviously something we could all stand to learn. Talk about how he taught you that lesson and how that lesson has played out in your life. Yeah. So people often ask me, given the title of your book, everything I learned, I learned in a Chinese restaurant. What's the first lesson or most important lesson you learned? And I always like to say that, um, you know, when you're a kid, your parents will often say, don't talk to strangers. My parents actually gave me the exact opposite uh, uh, advice, and they said, talk to strangers. And who they were talking about were the people sitting in our dining room, because once again, my mom didn't have a chance to uh, finish high school. My dad had to drop out of community college. They didn't necessarily know all the opportunities that existed outside the four walls of that Chinese restaurant, but they knew there was this dining room full of people who did. And so anytime my dad you know, met somebody, um, who was, you know, had sounded like they had a good job or just seemed really happy. He'd call all six of his kids to run over and barrage these people with questions like, what do you do for a living? How do you, you know, get your job? How much money do you make? You know, and so it was a really great opportunity um, to learn because my dad, again, was someone who grew up in Chinatown, but he was always able to find a way to connect with people. And so he taught me the importance of not being afraid of talking to people who are different from you, not being afraid of um, asking questions if you don't know the answer to something, uh, and more importantly, not to be afraid to ask for help if you need it. Um, and my dad was really wonderful about that. And so I feel like um, that's something that's helped me throughout my whole life, this ability to hopefully connect with people that are different, but also um, to engage with them. Um, and this idea of going and talking to people in the restaurant, I think it becomes especially rich when you realize the variety of people who came into your restaurant. <laughs> Can oh you tell us? I mean, I, I was just amazed at some of the things you stories you told about that. Oh my God, we had the whole gamut, right? Like literally Chinese restaurants are one of those few places where you can go in and see a cross section of America, right? I mean, so rich, poor, Jewish, Christian, you know, gay, straight, you know, we took everybody's money. And so uh, <laughs> people would just come in and as a young kid, you get to absorb all this. So like, even though my family, my family is very protective because the restaurant was literally uh, in the worst neighborhood in Detroit called the Cass Corridor. There was this one block where my uh, family, um, you know, uh, uh, allowed us to play, which yeah. is this Chinatown. But despite that, the whole city came into our restaurant. They would travel in, you know, despite us being in a bad neighborhood, they would actually come in. And so everybody from the mayor of Chinatown to the local pimps and prostitutes, everybody frequented uh, our, our restaurant. And so that was a great seat. Yeah. I, I was struck, you know, when I, as I was reading this book, because it is, there is so much food in this book, and it's a book about an immigrant family. I, I was constantly thinking about these food metaphors that we use to describe America. And is it a melting pot? Or is it a stew? Or, you know, um, how do how do you see America in those terms? Uh, a buffet, maybe? A buffet. <laughs> 
you know i mean that's the beautiful thing about um food in general is its adaptability i actually have these uh fights with some people who are very traditional about food they're like oh there's an authentic way to make food or whatever but i'm like no it's all about fusion it's all about adaptability and that's the wonderful thing about america is that we we're throwing in all these ingredients into the same pot right and how they how what comes out of it I understand the aversion of saying it's no longer a melting pot because that implies that, you know, we're, we're losing the distinct nature of each of the things. So um, maybe a buffet plate, like I said, where you can have a little bit of everything, but yet at the same time, they all cohesively stick together yeah. um, would be a nice metaphor. And, you know, talking about whether it's we're a melting pot anymore, can, can you talk a little bit, I think you get at this, some in the book, about this sort of tightrope that that many immigrants are forced to walk between assimilation into a new culture and and being true to their own cultural heritage and cultural identity. Yeah, I think that um, you know this. It is a challenge that we face as a country. Is like how do we uh, remain unified but yet at the same time allow for individuality, right? I mean, I think that yeah. actually is just the fundamental question that we face as individuals, right? Like the the idea of the individual versus community mm -hmm. and on a grander scale that's what the country is facing too it's like how can we be our individual selves at the yet at the same time be part of a larger american community and at some point we're being forced because of how people are defining what that american community is um i'd like us to get to the point where we can where you can wear multiple hats right so i myself it's like I define myself in multiple ways. Yes, sometimes I'm Asian American. Sometimes I'm a gay American. Sometimes, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. You know, sometimes I'm a Detroiter. Sometimes I'm working class. And it's this idea of being able to um, wear multiple identities and being comfortable in it and not being threatened when we're not part of that, I think is the challenge that we have as a country. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you read about, I, I was really struck by this. You, you read about the first time that you lied to, or at least weren't completely open with your mother. And you say something that, that really stuck with me. You say, I chose what parts to leave out, a skill I became pretty good at as I got older. Um, first of all, like, how do you choose what parts to leave out of, of this book, for instance? Um, to be honest with you, my agent and editors <laughs> uh, <laughs> A little bit of shaping of that but i think that as kids it's like we do um you know it's not a, it's not about being honest or dishonest with your parents but yeah sometimes there are things that you you decide not to tell them just because um it's it's uh safer in that moment or or better for everybody um and so you do put that balance in i don't think it's being dishonest uh and that a lot of that relates to you know coming out yeah. or whether the troubles that you're dealing with, you know, at school. Um, so yeah, uh, we always have a public self and a private self. And it's a question of how much um, we choose to uh, share, I think. Yeah, there, there's this, there's a moment in some people's lives, and you talk about this moment in your life, that I think most of us who are straight have probably have a difficult time imagining. Um, because few of us remember the moment when we went, hey, I just realized I, I'm straight, you know, I'm attracted to people of the opposite gender um, because that's what has been expected of us by the models that have been set around us. But you had this moment when you, when you realized that you were gay, tell us about that, about how it felt. And, you know, can you sort of help interpret that 
that experience for a straight person? Well, I think that when you're growing up, I can only share my personal experiences. Um, and so the way I talk about it in the book is that at first, when you're a kid, you just um, you're still exploring the world. You're st- you're you're just finding yourself in new situations, meeting new people, and it's all interesting to you, right? Um, and so for me, uh, when I first met this boy that I really liked, I didn't understand what that liking was. I just knew I'd like to be around him. It was not a sexual thing or anything like that. It was just this feeling that I would have. Uh, and then when I got a little bit older, um, I started to understand that, oh, there's a physical component to it. It's not just being in this person's presence, but you actually want to physically touch this person. Uh, and then that's a different level of understanding. And then when you finally come up with this idea that, oh, um, it's a sexual thing, not just a physical thing, but a sexual thing, then on one hand, there is relief because you now have an understanding of what it is, but there's also a fear because there's a recognition that that understanding is actually um, a scary place to be. It, 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 it's, 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 you're really torn because on one hand, you're relieved because you finally understand yourself, but then you're scared because that understanding of yourself is going to uh, put you in conflict with so many people. And this is particularly in the 80s, a much different time yeah. period, like 40 yeah. years ago. Um, I, I think to some degree still now, it's it's gotten definitely a lot better for, for young people to come out. But back then, yeah, I mean, it, that was the the um, the stark contrast between knowing and loving yourself and knowing and, and understanding that loving yourself is going to put you in conflict with people. It was, was really um, some of that terror sector, you know. Yeah. And I think for younger people reading this book, it's also it's important to understand that, you know, realizing you were a gay man in the in the mid 80s almost felt like a death sentence because of the because of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I worried about whether or not young people would care even for this older generation of what we went through. But it really was a death sentence. I talk about, you know, when growing up, I literally thought I'd be dead by the age of 30. Um, Just did not see. And how did that change my psyche, my expectations? Uh, and then also later on when I get older and I realized that I actually did have a life uh, that I might have years to sort of contribute, it did change things. And I did worry about, you know, um, you know how young people would be able to relate to this or even appreciate it. But I think that when now that we see this, these uh, rise in anti-Asian, I mean, anti-gay uh, book bans and things yeah. like that, I think that um, I think that some of them are recognizing, like, okay, um, yes, it's difficult what we're going through now, but we've made a lot of progress when we do compare it to the old time. So hopefully that gives them some comfort, you know, that, yeah. that community has faced other challenges before and we've we've overcome them and we will also overcome this. I think that's the lesson that I would like them to, to take from the book. Tell, tell us a little about, about your early attempts to sort of not be gay and, and what what motivated that. Uh, well, for me, um, you know, my family's Buddhist, so we didn't really have the concept of heaven and hell. The fear of coming out was really more about disappointing my family. Uh, I knew how much my fa- my parents had sacrificed for us. I knew how much they had given up in their own lives for us, and I just didn't want to disappoint them. And so I never had a fear that my family would ever kick me out, because that's just not who they are. Um, but I did have a fear that I would disappoint them um, and not live up to their expectations. And that 
was the thing that sort of held held me down I mean, from coming out. So obviously, you can only talk about your own experience, but but in your experience and perspective, how accepting is the the Chinese American community of the LGBTQ experience? I mean, is is that I know different cultural com- communities have sort of different overriding attitudes. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's really hard because even saying the term Chinese is really hard because there's difference. There's, you know, even regionally, right? Just sure. like there are re- yeah. regional differences in America. Yeah. You can't really say um, how do Americans feel about homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I would like to think that there there is a certain amount of, I don't know if I'd use the term homophobia, but there there is a certain, pre- it's more of a pressure in the Chinese community to maintain certain relationships and certain order right mm-hmm. and that's the thing that they're thinking about because that it's a it's a more communal based thing because like even confucian society right they're the five basic um relationships right between you know husband and wife father you know parent and child government and people it's like it's all laid out the the way they expect people to operate within that system so there's that pressure um so i don't i don't know uh so I, I think that because there's not that harsh judgment at the end, um, I, I think it's maybe a little bit easier, a little bit better. And definitely, you know, if there's a Buddhist component to it, there's less because we don't we don't have those things. We're much more um, open minded about about these things, the fluidity of things, understanding life is about balance and, and, and harmony. So, yeah, it is complicated. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I know that my husband, who is you know he's asian too but he's christian and i think that or he grew up christian um that probably led to a lot more difficulties than i had yeah you know growing up as a buddhist yeah mm-hmm. so you're obviously we're talking to a successful writer that means you're a creative person um and you were a creative person in childhood talk about how your creativity manifested itself in childhood and and the importance of creativity in in childhood development in general Oh, that's interesting that you say that. I'm not. I'm not really. Sh- I mean, I do feel like I. I. I was. I was training myself to be creative, but I don't know if I was creative because mm-hmm. I didn't have an outlet. It's not like you know my parents sent me to you know piano lessons or things like that. I or we signed up for theater classes. We were at the restaurant working, um, but I think that uh, I like to say this to other um, people that want to write is that you don't necessarily have to have that traditional background to become a writer or actor or whatever, um, you just have to be a person, a human being. That's the most important thing. I like to say that in our Chinese restaurant, we didn't have very many books, so I I wasn't a big reader. People will oftentimes ask a writer, what was the one book that changed your life that made you want to become a writer? And I I always say, like, I didn't have that because in our Chinese restaurant, we basically had two types of books, the ones left behind by our customers. One were the Holoquin romances. Yes, yeah. Whatever, and then the other one was the Bible. Uh, um, you know, as a closeted gay Asian Buddhist, I had zero interest in either one of those. Yeah. So I really didn't read. But what I did do was I paid attention. I listened. I, I observed the world. I came up with with ideas and opinions about things. You know, and I became empathetic towards people. And I feel like those are all skill sets you need to be a good writer too. Is that you have to be engaged with the world. And if you aren't practicing, you know you know, by reading or writing as a young person, that's okay. 
just as long as you as long as you you have ideas percolating in your head. So if that's what you're talking about, then yeah, I feel like um being in a Chinese restaurant, having a front seat to see the world and to come yeah. up with ideas and that and have opinions about the things going on in the world, then yeah, I feel like then then that was that was a great place to grow up. To I also see those moments when you are in the kitchen. You're not in the kitchen a lot, but you talk oh. about you know. Okay. putting together combinations of food that other people haven't put together. Oh, okay. That's I, what you know, you're talking about. Yes. I, I, I love those moments because it just, <laughs> you just see you're thinking outside the box, you know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. If you're including culinary stuff. So uh, the joke <laughs> in the book is that everybody in my family had a specialty. My grandmother made the sweets. My grandfather made the barbecue meats. Uh, an interesting twist is that my dad who was born in America made the best Hong Kong style food. But my mom, who grew up in Hong Kong, made the best American, you know, Western American yeah. food, <laughs> you know. And, you know, every time our family gathered to cook a giant meal, everybody was in the kitchen. It was loud. It was crowded. It was a lot of fun. But I was the worst cook. So I was the one always banished to the um, dining room to go set the table. But whenever I did get a chance to sneak in there and contribute, it was always fun to, like, you know, just be behind the walk, even if I had the most disastrous dishes that nobody wanted to eat. Uh, it was <laughs> yeah. You one of the things I I loved about the way you write this book, just on a on a sentence word to word level, is that you know it's got the word Chinese on the cover. So we have these certain expectations. It's in a Chinese restaurant, but you pepper this book with so many cultural references, pop cultural references from mostly from the American nineteen eighties, uh, everything from the Pet Shop Boys to to Wheezy Jefferson. Um, can you talk a little bit about the place of American popular culture in your own development? And then also the sort of clever and subtle ways that you weave that into your prose? Yeah, that was that was very important to me, you know, to be able to put a time and place to this um, the story. I feel like, um, uh, well, the bigger issue is oftentimes is that as Asian Americans, we're perceived as foreigners, you know, like we're outsiders. And so I really wanted to place it not only just for myself, right? Like I put these markers in because they helped me write the book because they, when it, like you said, if I would say like the pet shop boys or a phrase like, you know, um, you know, like the fonds, you know, yeah. it, it helped, it stirred memories of like, Oh, what was I going on? So that's one reason I put it in there. But the benefit of also putting it in there is that by having these cultural references, non-Asians, right. Um, who sometimes don't, have a sense of where Asian Americans fit in into the big pictures, because they see these references, they know where they are at that moment, then it makes it easier for them to connect to my story, right? To feel like I am, you know, having a shared experience with them, but slightly different, you yeah. know? Like when I refer to myself as the Asian Alex P. Keaton, you know, um, people of a certain generation are going, oh, I love Family Ties. I love Michael J. Fox. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, that's interesting that you you know, we're also into this, but you did it because you felt like as a Asian American, it was the best way to blend in because you guys are oftentimes accused of being un-American, right? So it's it's taking cultural uh, touchstones in their own lives and being able to connect it. I, it was it was a deliberate strategy on my part, um, you know, to make it a very American book. So it's like, yes, you think you're going to pick up this book and learn about a Chinese American family in Detroit, right? But you really are going to be learning about America in the 80s um, yeah. and how that actually has implications for America now in the year 2024. Let's let's talk for a minute about Curtis Chen because he's like, he's a pretty cool guy and we only get to know him through college um, in, in this book. Um, 
and, and some of the stuff you've done since then is uh, I'm kind of in awe of. So um, first of all, tell me about founding the Asian American Writers Workshop and, and what that organization does. Yeah, so um, the book ends with the fundamental question that I start off the opening line is, uh, welcome to Chung's for here to go. At the end of the book, I do make that decision that it is time to go, that that what I could achieve back at the University of Michigan at in Ann Arbor, in Detroit, had had sort of reached you know um, its its point, and so I I end the book um, leaving uh, uh, Michigan. And so what I did afterwards, I, I had a really great, wonderful experience, you know, in life. It's been really wonderful. The foundation that 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 experience growing up in Detroit has given me. Um, the Asian American Writers Workshop is a group that uh, I I along with a few other young Asian Americans in our early twenties started as soon as I you know, move to New York City, because that was my goal was to find other writers of color that I could work with. And, um, you know, we just started meeting together, you know, very basically. And then after that, we're like, oh, we should put together a reading together. Oh, we should publish our stuff together. And within a course of five years, we had gone from a budget of zero to $750,000. I mean, you know, uh, we'd won an American Book Award by one of the anthologies we'd published. We were offering $10,000 scholarships to writers, you know, and connecting them with agents and editors. I mean, it was a real, and we ran the largest Asian American bookstore. It was a really, really wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, you know, uh, and and to this day, if you mention an Asian American writer, you know, they've have some connection with that group, like Min Jin Lee, you know, the author Pachinko's on the board. Hua Su, who just won the Pulitzer, is also on the board. Alexander Chi was on staff. Hanya Yanigahara edited the journal. Lisa Ko was an editor on the journal. Junpa Lahiri taught classes there. Ocean Vong had his first reading there. It's like name an Asian American writer and it's like, boom, they have some connection to that organization. So I'm very proud of it. Yeah. Even though I'm not affiliated with the group anymore, um, you know, officially, I'm very proud of what we were able to accomplish. I think one of the great joys in life is to be able to help start something and then not be affiliated with it anymore because it, it can, it can fly on its own. So I think, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, so, that was, that was a big issue for me because I'd seen other nonprofit arts organizations, which suffered from a thing called founder syndrome where yeah, they stay yeah. a little bit too long and um, it actually hurts both sides. And so that's why I made a conscious decision that even though the organization was still growing and on the upswing, it was time for me to step aside as the first executive director to give someone else a shot and see if this idea of this organization could could um is so important that it would outlast any single individual or personality yeah 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 and now tell us a little bit about your work in documentary films yeah so i shifted over sadly after uh, my parents um you know were in a car accident back in detroit and um, i was writing for the disney channel at that time um i'd switched to tv writing um a few years earlier and um, yeah, it was just devastating, um, you know, because uh, I was the one who had to go back and sell this magical family Chinese restaurant that my family had been running since 1940. Um, and when I was back there, I mean, the, the, the Disney Channel wanted me to come back to L.A. and work on another show, but I just wasn't in the mood to tell jokes or to be happy or anything. So I, I decided to uh, switch to um, uh, finding a subject that I thought my parents would be very interested in or my dad would be interested in because my dad passed away. My, my mom was severely injured, but my dad passed away. Um, and I wanted to do a story that I thought that he would be interested in. And so then when I thought back to like a family friend who had been murdered when we were a kid, 
you know, in a in a terrible hate crime, a famous hate crime called the Vincent Chin murder. That's when I decided to uh, take a shot at doing a documentary, maybe a social justice documentary. And so it was very um, a healing process, I think, for me yeah. to sort of switch over. And so this this book's been out for a while now. What what has been the reaction to to because mem- I have the same issue with writing a memoir. And I know a lot of people have this. What's been the reaction of your family? of other people who are mentioned in the book to, you know, an, an open and honest warts and all portrayal in, in this memoir? Uh, well, first of all, my family hasn't read the book and I don't think they plan to read it. Uh, <laughs> according to my sister, she has zero interest in learning about my sexual awakening. So that's fair. <laughs> um, but I think they do support it because uh, when I post up things on Facebook, they always hit the like button. Oh. So that's nice. Um, and another good sign is that when I was writing my first book, I would try to turn to my siblings and ask them for corroborating, um, you know, uh, information and stuff like that. And they would always be like, oh, I'm too busy. Don't bother me. Why are you writing this? But now that the first book is out, it came out in October. So what? It's been yeah. about five months now. Um you know, now that the book's been out for a few months and we've gotten this really incredible, really national press, right? Like CBS Saturday Morning News, PBS NewsHour, NBC, you know, uh, Daily News Show. I mean, it's just everywhere. They've been really supportive. And so now as I'm working on my next memoir, um, they have been really uh, very uh, open to like helping out this yeah. time, which I think is a good sign. Are, can you tell us anything about the the next book? Yeah, I, I think that um, it's going to be about, well, first of all, I thought, it, my, originally I thought the idea was, so the first book has 24 stories and I had another 20 stories that didn't make it in. So I said to my agent, I said, oh, we should sell a second book called Leftovers, right? Of all the <laughs> but um, I don't know if I want to publish that book because I feel like maybe I've already covered this time period of my life. So those 20 stories will, may never see the light of day. But I think I might want to use that same title of Leftovers and talking about the time period when I had to fly back to Detroit and took over the family business or try to sell the family business, um, you know, and being a leftover because I was the last one in Detroit. Everybody moved away because my mom was injured in the car accident. So we had to move her out to the Bay Area where my brother was a doctor and where we should get better care. And then because of that, um, everybody else, all my siblings, all slowly gravitated, moved out there to join them to sort of take care of my mom. But I was sort of the one abandoned uh, in Detroit to deal with the the, the fallout from it and all the emotion uh, around that um, of selling this family business and also being in the restaurant for the first time in 20 years of having to work there again after becoming a, a writer, you know. Um, so I feel like that that could be the book um, yeah. Yeah. that I'd want to write. But it's hard, though, because I, I, I don't I'm not a grief I have to understand this idea of grief, right? I have to do some more exploration of it because my my tendency in life after any tragedy or any bad experience has always been just to move on, right? Just to move on. Um, and I think that's okay as a human being. Sometimes you can forget things and it's okay. But I think as a writer, you have to do the opposite, right? Like particularly if you're writing a memoir, you have to pick at the scabs of things and it forces you to maybe uh, relive unpleasant thoughts and make sense of some very complicated emotions um like for instance my dad and i i had been fighting a lot prior to his his death and so i have a a certain amount of guilt about that that i just never resolved i i'd gotten upset at him several years earlier because he had to 
he actually closed down the location in, in the inner city, the one that I grew up in, you know, and I was very upset at him about that and the way he handled that because, um, you know, he just told me one day like, oh, I'm closing the restaurant. And I'm like, well, you're going to, well, first I, I was shocked by it. But then when I eventually accepted that he had to close it down, I said like, well, you can't just close it down at the end of this week. You have to give it a month and announce it so that all these people have been coming to our restaurant for literally, you know, six decades can come back and celebrate with you and, and say goodbye properly. Yeah. And he's like, no. And he was, I don't know in the end if he was too embarrassed because the restaurant was, that location was closing underneath him or because he couldn't just emotionally say goodbye to these people. I don't, I don't understand that, but I was so mad at him for that decision that I would just, every decision that he made about the business after that, I just questioned. I just, I lost faith in him. And um, yeah, I, I just don't know if I, I ever really fully processed uh, those those emotions that I feel about my dad and how, you know, um, where our relationship was when he passed. Yeah, yeah. You write, my family succeeded because of America, but America also succeeded because of us. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm very pro-America. I love America, despite understanding America's complicated history, but also understanding that we contributed to part of this too. I feel like a lot of times, you know, some people who are anti-immigrants think that like immigrants have just come and taken from this country without contributing. And I wanted to show that it's a two-way street, much the way that the individual and families operate, right? Like individuals contribute to families and families give back to individuals. It's always that you have to be able to wear two hats at once. And that's why I, I sort of put that line in there. It's like, yeah, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that this country has offered. But I also want other people um, you know, outside of my family and outside of my community to understand that, hey, we helped build America too, yeah. right? We didn't just come and take, you know, my family wasn't part of the railroads, right? Because we came right after that had been completed. But you know what? The completion of the railroad was very important to our American history, right? You know, I mean, so we've contributed in lots of ways. And so I wanted that recognition is that, yes, we are thankful, but please, recognize our contributions too. Yeah. We, we're not, we didn't just come here to take from America, America. We came to help build this country, literally too. We came to help make a more perfect union, as they say. Yeah. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little bit of insight into you and into your writing. So we will begin. Great. What word do you love to work into your writing? Am I supposed to just say the first word that popped into my head? Sure, yeah. This isn't true, but I don't know why, but the word apple pie popped into my head. Uh, Maybe because of what you, you just asked me before. Anyway. <laughs> uh, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? The word hate? Okay. Where's your favorite place to write? Um, anywhere, because I write in my head. Oh, well. Where could you never write? Maybe... <laughs> Um, I, I, I like crowds because I grew up in, in sure. very big things. So I think maybe out in the wilderness might be hard for me. Yeah. That's why I don't really apply for residencies. Um, yeah. I don't know what that'd be like. Yeah. So what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I don't know. I like adverbs, but maybe I shouldn't use them as much people say. Um, what's the first book you remember reading? 
Ah, see, there's that question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, the first book that I ended up reading was the Yellow Pages, the phone book, because oh, I, would, I would look through the phone book and look for as many Asian names as I, I could find. Oh, wow, wow. What are you <laughs> reading now? Uh, I'm reading a lot of grief memoirs. <laughs> what book would you like to have written? Um. I don't know. I, I I don't think I have an answer to that. I don't think there is an answer to that, except the book that I wrote myself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm happy with the book that I wrote because that's my voice. I don't think I would have. Um, I think when I was a poet, I used to think about that a little bit more. Like, oh, my God, that's a perfect poem. Yeah. How did they find those words to put together those sounds, those languages? You know, but um, I don't I don't do that as often. I don't get... I don't get jealous. I think that's maybe something you you have when you're younger, a writer. You might get jealous, but yeah. I think when you're older, you realize that you have your own voice and you've settled into it. And it's a, a amalgamation of all the uh, voices and sounds and experiences that you've had. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Ah, I would love to write an expansive world building thing like a, a, a Lord of the Rings type yeah. of thing using a mythology like the stuff that you love you know what I mean yeah. I just yeah. I feel like you have to like probably uh, uh, go away for like five years right yeah. to to do that I just don't know if I have the time but that seems like a really fun thing to do right yeah, yeah. and finally what would you like to hear a reader tell you I love it when I hear readers tell me that they finished my book in a day yeah that's the greatest compliment. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Curtis Chin, whose memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant, is available wherever books are sold. And who knows, there might be still a few signed copies at Bookmarks. Curtis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Nina Simon about her debut novel, Mother Daughter Murder Night. Until then... Thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.